Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most bizarre, the most deadliest homicide cases in Maryland are profiled and examined. This season, season one, child murderers are profiled. On this episode, child murderers Nathaniel Broadway and Sierra Swan are examined, and this episode's unsolved homicide is the grisly murder of Mary Helen Dickens Hines. Let's face it and put it out there. Young Sierra had it fucked up from the very beginning. Her father was nowhere in the picture, and her mother struggled with a crack cocaine addiction. The oldest of five brothers and sisters, As a kid, she basically had to take care of all of them because her mother's addiction problems and her issues and everything else that came along with that. For example, all five of her brothers and sisters lived with her mother and her boyfriend in a tiny, shitty one-bedroom apartment with no gas or electricity. The apartment was located in East Baltimore And Sierra's mother later told a reporter for the Baltimore Sun that even as she struggled with drug addiction, Sierra at one point had a great childhood. She got good grades, she never got in trouble, and she went shopping on a regular basis. She said as a kid, Sierra loved braiding hair for her sisters and people in the neighborhood. When her mother got pregnant again and had a baby that was addicted to crack cocaine, Child Protective Services got involved and did what they do. They found out the the conditions that the other kids were living in and split all of them up and put them all in foster homes, including 13-year-old Sierra. That move devastated her. Breaking up her family, no matter how bleak the living conditions, sent her into a downward spiral. She dropped out of school, started acting out, started running away from foster homes and started living on the streets and she started looking for love in all of the wrong places. Just as Sierra was turning 14, she met 21-year-old Nathaniel Broadway. Maybe they bonded over their past despite him being seven years older than her and basically a pedophile. But anyway, his past wasn't no better than hers. Both of his parents were heavy drug users. His mother died from a drug overdose. His father, who had been addicted to heroin and crack cocaine since the age of 19, also died from a drug drug overdose. When he was just 44 years old in the year 2000. As an only child, Nathaniel did have two uncles who were also dead and an aunt who was still alive but said she never even met him 
She never even knew her nephew, and she never even knew he existed. After his father died, Nathaniel dropped out of Fairmont Harford High School, where he was an 18-year-old student, and went to live with his grandmother, who also ended up dying shortly after he got there. The couple met, they hooked up in their neighborhood in the 700 block of East 20th Street, and the magnetic attraction was deadly. A year after they met, at 15 years old, Sierra became pregnant by him and gave birth to her first daughter at 16. She was still living in a foster home on Flowerton Road in Emerson Village with her baby daughter when things went from bad to worse with Nathaniel. Her foster mother later told a reporter for the Baltimore Sun that at first Sierra was a good mother and she took care of her daughter. Her foster mother had only one rule, no overnight visits with Nathaniel. If he wanted to see his daughter, man up, better yourself, get a job, get your own place, etc., etc. But Sierra didn't listen to none of that. A typical teenager, she wasn't listening to any of those words and she could care less about the consequences. Once, Sierra asked her father and mother to use her bank card to get some baby stuff for her daughter. Later, she called her foster mother from the Red Shed clothing store on Greenmont Avenue and told her that somebody had stolen her card. When she went to the store to find out just what was going on, the manager described Sierra to a T, telling her that her herself had charged $500 in men's clothes for Nathaniel who was with her picking stuff out. After that, her foster mother kicked her out of her house. Sierra then started staying with her godmother back in East Baltimore. Her godmother, who struggled with her own drug addiction, was completely shocked by how Sierra took care of her baby daughter. She told a reporter for the Baltimore Sun that to get her baby to go to sleep, she saw Sierra pouring vodka in her daughter's milk. She said the toddler smelled like urine every time she saw her, and she was always dirty and messy. She said that Sierra told her that to teach her daughter how not to go up and down the steps, she put her daughter halfway up the steps and let her tumble all the way to the bottom as some sort of weird lesson. When her godmother asked Sierra about some sort of mark on her daughter's arm, Sierra proudly told her that she had burned the girls with a pair of hot curlers to teach her not to touch the curlers anymore. When her daughter was tired and whiny, sometimes Sierra would pat her on the back to try to get her to go to sleep. Sometimes those pats would turn to thumps, and sometimes those thumps would turn to bangs that got louder and louder. Her godmother didn't like Nathaniel either, and he wasn't allowed in her house at all. Not really a family man anyway. Nathaniel would go ghost for weeks at a time with other girls and come back to her saying that the other girls meant nothing to him and he only loved her. The same story, blah, blah, blah. When he would show up, the couple would sit on their front porch drinking cognac, 
being a glorious role model to his young daughter. Neighbors would tell her that they saw her with their own eyes, Sierra throwing her daughter to the ground or slapping her face out of anger. Her godmother said that she would report these stuff to Child Protective Services, but they always said stuff like if she didn't witness the abuse herself, then there was nothing that they could do. One day, her godmother noticed that the whole side of Sierra's daughter's face was swollen. Her left eye was swollen shut. She had bite marks all on her body, and it looked like several of her teeth had been knocked out. That's when she couldn't take it anymore. This time, she called Child Protective Services. Two social workers showed up at her door to investigate. Sierra took off running jetted out the back door holding her daughter in a childish attempt to escape. The social workers literally found her hiding in some bushes in the next street over like a child. From that day on, she lost custody of her daughter, who was almost two. The toddler weighed less than 20 pounds when she was taken by social workers, and the move probably saved her life. Nathaniel, who was locked up when his daughter was taken by Child Protective Services, was furious with Sierra when he got out and found out that his daughter was mixed up in the foster care system. Sierra had told him that she was staying with relatives and when he found out the truth, he beat her mercilessly. After her daughter was taken by Child Protective Services and she lost custody, she stopped dealing with her godmother and she called her former foster mother, begging to come live with her again. Her foster mother reluctantly gave in. She gave her another chance and she allowed her to move back in with her. But she laid out the same ground rules. No Nathaniel visits. Again, teenagers think they can do what they want with no repercussions or consequences and Sierra ignored her rule totally. Her foster mother started noticing food missing out of her refrigerator she started smelling weed and cigarette smoke coming from her basement where Sierra slept. She had put a padlock on that basement window, but she noticed that not only had Sierra broken the lock, but her neighbors told her that they had seen Nathaniel climbing in and out of her basement window ever since Sierra came back to live with her. The next time she smelled smoke coming from the basement, she called the police. When the cops came, they found Nathaniel in Sierra's bed. Her foster mother kicked her out again. Nobody, not even Sierra, knew that she was pregnant again. Child Protective Services put her in another foster home, but she ran away from that one shortly after being there. Done with foster homes and rules that kept her from taking her away from her baby daddy. Now, at 17 years old, Sierra decided she was just going to stay on the run until she got 18 and where she would be considered a legal adult and could do whatever she wanted and lived with whoever she wanted. Together, she and Nathaniel moved into the basement of a vacant home in the 1900 block of East 31st Street in Northeast Baltimore. The home had no lights, no heat, no electricity, no gas, no running water, no toilet. They had the nerve to put a crib and a mattress in there in the middle of a basement that was run down with littered trash and garbage. On April 12, 2004, Sierra went into labor. 
the first baby was born in the leg of her sweatpants while she was in a cab on the way to John Hopkins Hospital. When she got to the hospital, a doctor took the baby out of the leg of her sweatpants and she gave birth to the second twin girl. She named the newborns Imani and Imania Broadway. You would think that you would be safe in a hospital, especially after you've just given natural birth to twins as a teenager, and especially when you are surrounded by doctors and nurses. But despite all that, several nurses heard loud yelling and noises coming from her room. And when they went in her room to find out what was going on, they found Nathaniel in her room beating on her, leaving her with a swollen lip. Security was called and Nathaniel was ushered out. He was placed on security restriction and not allowed to visit her anymore. But none of that mattered anyway, because even though she had told the hospital staff that she had another daughter that she had lost custody of, she told them that she hadn't had a drop of prenatal care for either of her pregnancies and the fact that her boyfriend had been beating on her in her hospital room two days later they let her walk right out of the room with those two babies nurses had written on several daily progress reports that nathaniel's visits had been restricted another nurse wrote that there was obvious domestic violence in her home wherever that home may be to top this off Sierra tested positive for marijuana while she was in the hospital and before she was discharged from the hospital another nurse had just lectured her the night before that she wasn't feeding the baby's rights the nurse had sternly explained that newborns should be held close when they are fed and not laid up on their side with a bottle propped up in their mouths the nurse even told her that it wasn't a safe way to feed the babies. A hospital social worker got involved and wrote in her reports that Sierra didn't have a positive support system or a network of supportive people or person around her and she actually seemed intellectually limited. Her mother was long gone to the streets dealing with her own demons and she rarely heard from Sierra or saw her especially since she had lost custody of her own kids. Still, despite dealing with all of this, Sierra turned down medical treatment for her busted lip and was released from John Hopkins Hospital with her twins. The hospital staff did refer her to Baltimore's Health Department of Maternal Infant Nursing Program. The goal of this program is to prevent infant deaths and preventable accidents by educating the parents on what is safe and what is not safe for you and your baby. They actually come to your home, they check up on you and your kids to make sure that you both are receiving the proper resources, the proper materials, the proper referrals that you need, whether it be food, housing, daycare, education, etc., stuff like that. The organization even does referrals to drug treatment programs, counseling programs, and offer free legal assistance with any pending legal issues you may have. The program had scheduled a home visit with Sierra for the last address that they had on file for her, which was nothing as she was listed as a runaway. Either way, the visit was scheduled too late. 
After Sierra left the hospital with her daughters, she stuck to her original program and that was to stay out of sight, out of dodge, and avoid all the social workers and programs and all that stuff until she turned 18 in October, which was just five months away. So she took the babies back to the vacant basement on East, Bald East 31st Street. Nobody heard nothing from them until May 11th, just a month after the twins were born. The parents woke one morning and realized the babies were no longer breathing. Nathaniel went next door, used a neighbor's phone, and called 911. When paramedics, paramedics arrived at the vacant home and discovered the living conditions, police were also involved. The paramedics soon discovered that the babies had actually died a while before they even got there. Cold, lifeless, bruised, and obviously malnourished. After being transported to John Hopkins Hospital, doctors discovered that the newborns had fractured skulls and broken ribs. 17-year-old Sierra and 24-year-old Nathaniel were immediately arrested and charged with murdering the twin newborn daughters. At first, Sierra said she told police that she didn't know what happened. She told them that she had fed the twins early in the day. She checked on them and they were fine. Later, when she checked on them, she noticed they weren't breathing anymore. Later, she told them that she found one of the girls with one of her eyes shut and one eye was open. Nathaniel told them that he didn't know how or why they died. He said he was rarely ever even around with his makeshift family. He said he didn't live there and he spent most of his time playing sports and hanging with his friends or other girlfriends. When detectives told him that the babies were basically beaten and starved to death, he told them, well, maybe she could have done anything to him to them while I was gone. I don't know. While they were locked up, Sierra's mother finally did get a letter from Nathaniel in the mail. In his squirrely third grade handwriting cluttered with misspelled words, in pencil he wrote, you know, spelled N-O. The kids passed away. They charged me, it spelled I-N, Sierra, with the murder for what I don't know, spelled N-O. She is here too. We got no bails. We go to the court June 8th for trial. We don't know how and why they passed. Sierra's family and her godmother, they all blamed Nathaniel for the murders even though they had seen with their own eyes Sierra abusing her own daughter. Uh, they said that he did influence her to the point where she didn't think for herself and all she wanted was love. That's what her foster mother said to reporters. He was real bad news for her. He kept her away from everybody who tried to get her better. And that's what her godmother said. After spending two years waiting for trial, Sierra changed her story and agreed to testify against Nathaniel. She told investigators that Nathaniel beat her constantly on the regular and she lived in constant fear of him. Calling the twins spoiled and greedy, she told them that Nathaniel ordered her not to feed them, and he told him to he told her to 
just basically let their little asses starve. She said she listened and obeyed them, even when she knew her babies were dying and starving to death because she was scared of him. In February of 2006, Sierra pled guilty to two counts of child abuse resulting in death and received a 30-year prison sentence with all but 15 years suspended. She has since been released from prison after serving her time. Nathaniel wanted to take his case in front of a jury and stalled for a few months. Then, as the jury were packing in the courtroom, he finally had a change of heart and pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder and received a 50-year prison sentence with all but 30 years suspended. The homicide of these two twin babies was notorious in murder in Maryland because when I heard about this one, I was shocked. The first thing that came to my mind was, wow, twins, newborns, did they die at the same time? Were they killed at the same time? Um, then I thought about the responsibility that the hospital played or social workers played. Um, she should never, I believe in my, she, they should never had released her from the hospital with those two babies, especially when they knew that she had lost custody of an older child. And also when they witnessed or had reports of domestic violence that they basically witnessed in her hospital room. Um, I'm surprised that they were never sued for negligence in this case. Uh, like I said, I remember this case vividly. I was locked up with Sierra in protective custody for whatever reasons at the time when this was going on. I felt very, very, very sorry for her because uh, she just seemed very childlike to me, very immature. She was still very much involved with Nathaniel as far as communicating with him and trying to establish some sort of relationship with him even as they were um, awaiting trial for the murders of their two twin daughters. Um, I remember he did get both their names tattooed on him while he was in prison. She just seemed very, very young and immature and lost. Jail was almost like a savior to her compared to a lifestyle of living on the streets and taking care of her brothers and sisters and um, being responsible for her mother. Um, I did also see her when she was almost released, when she was just about to be released. She said she had taken up some courses in uh, the prison facility where she was. And um, she was just looking forward to establishing a relationship with her other daughter. I hope that she has gotten her life together. Um, I believe she has stayed completely out of trouble. And she has accomplished that goal of establishing a relationship with her daughter. I did feel very sorry for her upbringing. Um, I cannot relate. I can relate to a tumultuous childhood, but not one that was that extensive of being involved with that street lifestyle as she had. Um, her, her childhood, basically, in my opinion, at 14 and, you know, her kid's father being 21, 
he basically was a pedophile that's the legal definition of a pedophile i mean um sierra is still able to procreate i'm not sure if she's had um other kids now or how her life has progressed but like i said i can you know a, a, a clear background check can tell that she's completely stayed out of any legal trouble um the same as with nathaniel uh nathaniel's release date is approaching he'll be released soon right now he's in a minimal uh security facility um and eventually he will be re released and able to have other kids so we shall see what the future will hold for these two defendants that served their time for uh this very very brutal and notorious murder that occurred in Merlin. This episode's unsolved homicide is the murder of Mary Helen Dickens Hines. Neighbors were concerned about 90-year-old Mary Helen Dickens Hines when they saw that her front door had been left halfway open during the middle of the day on May 4, 2016. A relative of one of the concerned neighbors called Baltimore City Police to investigate further. When Baltimore City Police came to her home in the 4500 block of Garden Drive in Central Park Heights around 12.30 p.m., they found the elderly woman severely beaten, unable to move, tied up, and barely breathing. She had also been brutally raped. Paramedics rushed the retired nurse and beloved neighbor to Sinai Hospital where she fought for 20 days to stay alive. Unfortunately, she died from her injuries on May 24, 2016. According to her neighbors, Mary, who was affectionately called Mrs. Hines, had lived alone at her home for more than 40 years. She was an avid gardener and was very close to her neighbors. She was originally from North Carolina, but had moved to Baltimore in the early 1970s and stayed ever since. This homicide completely stunned her neighbors, her family, and her friends because her murder didn't seem to just be some random killing. Her neighbor seemed to get her murderer, her killer, seemed to target her specifically despite her having zero enemies. This is a homicide that should be that should have been solved immediately. An elderly woman raped and beaten in the middle of the day by some random attacker? Something tells me that this just wasn't the killer's first rodeo. I mean, surely there must be some type of DNA left around, and I'm surprised detectives haven't really like solved this one yet. I mean, come on people. Imagine if this was your mother or your grandmother beaten or raped in her own her own home at 90 years old if anyone has any information leading to an arrest or conviction of the murderer of 90 year old mary helen dickens hines please call homicide detectives at 1-866-7-LOCKUP or 410-396-2100 or you can text them at 443-902-4824 Thank you for tuning in to Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. Please be sure to tune in next week 
where another gruesome, another high profile, another bizarre homicide in Maryland will be examined and profiled on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a real life production. Thank you.